awesome. Well, tonight, we're going to have our beloved brother, William, come up and give us a devotional. So if you'd give him your attention. Hello, everyone. Will you please turn to Psalm 127, verse 1 to 2. That's Psalm 127, verse 1 to 2. And it reads, Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he gives his beloved sleep. So this is a God-saturated view of life, and it is a viewpoint that all Christians should strive to have in their daily lives. In verse 1, it said, Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Um, whenever we are creating or building something new in our lives, the Lord is actually creating it. And unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Whenever we are protecting or preserving something, we have, we already, um, the Lord is the one who is actually protecting it. So building and preserving, that pretty much sums up all human activities in life. And this verse tells of the totality of God's will in all of these activities. And it is also important to note that it is not just God alone that builds or protects. There are also people who are building that house or protecting that city. So God is not doing everything by himself. Um, for we also have a role to play in fulfilling his will. However, if the venture that we are striving towards is not according to God's will, then all of our efforts will be in vain. So how do we know if something we want to do is according to God's will? In the second verse, it gives us a clue to this by telling us how not to go about doing things. It reads, it is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he gives his beloved sleep. In other translations, the, the term bread of sorrows can also be translated into the bread of anxious toil. And that's a key word there, anxiety and being sorrowful. Um, God does not want us to, to be anxious or sorrowful while we are working. We can wake up early or go to sleep late if we have a lot of work to do, but it's the condition of our hearts that God is concerned about. Are we stressing out because we feel it's all up to us and our own efforts to provide for ourselves? God wants us to work hard, but at the same time, uh, we have to have trust in him and 
in knowing that he will provide for us and protect us. And because he loves us, he works for us even while we sleep so that we can sleep well at night and not have to toss and turn in our beds, worrying about what bad things might come upon us tomorrow. So we should strive to continue to build and create and preserve, to do our best, to do what we can to improve our lives. But at the same time, we should acknowledge that we are not the only workers in our life, that God is also working in our lives and that he is the one who takes the decisive actions needed for our success. If we acknowledge that fact, we can work hard and yet still have rest for our weary souls, trusting in God's gentle heart for us and that he will make the heavy burdens of this life easier and lighter. A few centuries after the Psalms was written, Jesus comes and basically reiterates that same message in his uh, famous quote in Matthew. Come to me, all who, you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Thank you. Now they know that I wear shorts. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> All this time. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to uh, Genesis chapter. 28, 29, excuse me. That passage that William just read, uh, interestingly enough, uh, I've heard it used many times in relation to marriage. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. I'm, I'm reminded that in a relationship that God is the centrality of a Christian relationship, of a relationship in the Lord, there needs to be that foundation upon Christ. I bring this up because there is, in our chapter this evening, Genesis chapter 29, there is a relationship. There is a, a future husband and wife that we are going to be reading about. This is Jacob and Rachel. And with this relationship that we are going to observe uh, come together, we're going to see how God works his works the way he wants to work them. And that his plan is the best plan that there is. That when we strive in our own flesh, when we try to do things our own selfish way, it doesn't produce fruit, spiritual fruit. It, it grieves us. 
It causes harm to us. So if you have your Bible now, in Genesis chapter 29, remember when we left off, Jacob was fleeing from this family that he had already betrayed. He had stolen his brother's birthright. He stole it from his brother and also from his father. And now he's fleeing to safety, fleeing to the safety of his uncle Laban with the hope of starting a family. His father had told him, you're not to take a bride from the woman of Canaan, but I want you to take a bride from your own family. And as Jacob was fleeing from his family and as, as he was journeying there on the road, he got so tired, he fell asleep. And he had this dream, this dream of a staircase, a ladder leading into heaven. And he saw the angels descending to and fro upon it. And when he woke up, he knew that God had been so present with him. He called the place Bethel, the house of God. And now Jacob is, is beginning to understand God more. The, what Jacob is as a man who is selfish, who stole from his family, he's now beginning to see the work of God in his life. And this is beginning to convict him. This is beginning to take away the selfish life. But Jacob is also going to experience some heavy trials that he brings on himself in his own life because of his sinful nature that are going to also teach him le lessons. And in these lessons, he's going to learn to submit to the Lord. But as Jacob now is heading towards his uncle, we read in verse one of Genesis 29. So Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. And he looked and saw a well in the field. And behold, there were three flocks of sheep lying by it. For out of that well, they watered the flocks. A large stone was on the well's mouth. Now all the flocks would be gathered there. And they would roll the stone from the well's mouth, water the sheep, and put the stone back in its place on the well's mouth. So now as Jacob is coming to his uncle's land in Haran, he comes to these shepherds who are there tending their flocks. There's three groups of them. And this is a little bit after 12 p.m., and as Jacob approaches them, to them, to him, they seem to be kind of lazy. You see, their usual method of giving their flocks water was with this well that had a great stone upon it. They would wait until all the shepherds' herds had gotten there so that the shepherds together, all of them, could then move this big rock off of the well. They didn't want to do it by themselves and then have some of the flocks get watered because whoever was the first guy there would have to do all the work. So he would wait till everybody showed up and then it was kind of first come, first serve after that point when they all got the rock off the well. Now, as Jacob approaches them in verse four, it says, and Jacob said to them, 
my brethren, where are you from? And they said, we are from Haran. And then he said to them, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said to him, we know him. So he said to them, is he well? And they said, he is well. Look, his daughter Rachel is coming with the sheep. And it's at this point that Jacob sees Rachel. He's about to see her walking with the sheep. And Jacob is going to become enraptured by her beauty. He becomes just so in love with Rachel. It's almost one of those perhaps love at first sight moments. There's a physical attraction that God has given us. And it's natural. There is a natural attraction for a man to desire a woman and vice versa for a woman to desire a man. David wrote in the Psalms, he wrote that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. That's not just science and evolution that created us with these bodies that were, have the ability to procreate and have children with. No, that's God's design. He put it in us so that we have these drives that lead us towards intimacy that lead to more humans being born. And a man created, generally speaking, in his physical appearance has this unique display of strength. And a woman, generally speaking, has this display of the beauty that God has created. This natural attraction of men and women, which they have towards one another, was a good characteristic that God has placed in our desires. Now, it's tragic when a person is carried away with this natural desire in a sinful way. Intimacy was between a husband and a wife. And it's one of these desires and activities that it's to grow in the life of a believer, in the life of the marriage of a Christian marriage. But before marriage, it's sin. You see a fire coming from logs, fire logs, is beautiful in a fireplace. It's great in a bonfire pit. But when the fire spreads onto the home, when the, spry, the fire spreads into the hills of California, it's a dangerous thing. And in that same manner, the intimacy that is shared between a husband and a wife, when it is out of its natural place, out of the place where God had intended it to be, it burns people in sin. It leads to hell. Now, the natural attraction to one another, it is a holy thing. And it's often abused into sin, but God has a time and place for it. Now, what we're reading here is this natural attraction that Jacob is having for Rachel. This is one of the many accounts of how a couple meets in the Bible. 
I want you to realize that God does not work in cookie-cutter ways. Not every relationship in the Bible, they don't all meet the same way at all. Some of them meet in very insane, crazy ways, actually. I, I think this is one of the ones that we're going to read today. Now, in verse 7, it says, Then he said, Look, it is still high day. It is not time for the cattle to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go and feed them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together, and they have rolled the stone from the well's mouth. And then we water the sheep. So here the shepherds, they're explaining, hey man, like we kind of take it a little easier over here. We, there's no need to move the rock yet. We're just going to wait till everybody gets here and we'll move it together. But Jacob here, he perhaps sees an opportunity. Look at verse 9. Now while he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. And it came to pass when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, that Jacob went near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. So Jacob here, he sees Rachel coming, and he's just like, who is that? Who that? Who that? And in this way to display his strength to Rachel. He's like, you know what, guys? Don't worry. I got the rock. I'll move the rock for you guys. And he's just, just pushing this rock over, hoping, looking over at Rachel like, yeah, you see that? This is my strength. And he's pushing this rock over to show off. Kind of reminds me of the, the young Christians sometimes that we see at, at church and, and in order to display their strength, when we're stacking up chairs, they pick up as many chairs as possible in front of the girls to be like, yep, I carry this many chairs. Not that that's a bad thing. Chivalry, uh, it's not dead. Uh, it's dying, but it's not dead, and we need to keep it alive, men. I'm going to exhort the men uh, listening that we're to love the women that God has placed in our life. We're to be kind to them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 8, we have a definition of love right from the Bible. It says, love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. See this love that it's referring to here? This is the best part about this verse. God is love. In these verses, you can replace the word love with Jesus. And it reads this. 
Jesus suffers long and is kind. Jesus does not envy. Jesus does not parade himself. Jesus is not puffed up. Jesus does not behave rudely, does not seek his own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in truth. Jesus bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Jesus never fails. And we're comforted by these truths knowing this. Now, if we try to replace our name in these verses, Salvador suffers long and is kind sometimes. Not all the time. Most of the time, not. Salvador does not envy. That's, I, I failed there. Salvador does not parade himself. I try not to. Salvador is not puffed up. It's hard. We fail. I could go through this whole verse and, and just see how much I fail. But I'm reminded that in all these areas, these are things I need to strive for in my life, in my heart, in my mind. To be able to have that love that is unconditional with the people that God has placed in my life, with my enemies, with my family members, with my fiance. These are the things that convict me, that we are to seek after in our heart to be an example and a witness that God might be glorified through us. And we realize that God loves us so deeply. This is the type of love God has for us. It's that agape love, the Greek word agape love. It's that unconditional, undeserved, unmerited favor. May we have this agape love. Now, whether or not Jacob had this type of love at this moment, who's to say? But we do realize that Jacob was enraptured by Rachel's beauty so much he wanted to begin to woo her. And so we read on in Genesis, look at verse 11. It says, then Jacob kissed Rachel and lifted up his voice and wept. Now, I don't recommend this approach to men as the method of meeting women. Uh, in fact, uh, ladies, if a man tries this to you on his first time meeting you, he's probably not the one. Uh, Jacob here seems to be quite an emotional man. Uh, just first meeting Rachel, and he's enraptured by her beauty, kisses her, and then starts to cry. I'm kind of like, all right, Jacob, come on, man up, bro. Man up, what happened? You were just lifting the rock a second ago. But we see this emotion now, this account taking place in his life of Jacob meeting Rachel. And God works in mysterious ways. Look at verse 12. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's relative. And that was Rebekah's son. So she ran and told her father. And then it came to pass when Laban heard the report about Jacob, his sister's son, that he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. So he told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone 
and my flesh. And he stayed with him for a month. Now here we see this hospitality that the Eastern cultures had, where he's like, invites his nephew in and allows him to stay there for a month. And I mean, that's more common with families. But remember Laban, the last time we saw him in the Bible, he was actually giving away his daughter, Rachel. I'm sorry, Rebecca, his sister, not his daughter, Rebecca, his sister, to the servant who was bringing the bride to Isaac. So now his family's coming back to him. And so there is this kind of interesting hospitality that was giving away of his sister and now his sister is returning her son to him. And so I'm sure this was a great loving meeting that was taking place here. He calls him, you are my bone and my flesh. And verse 15, then Laban said to Jacob, because you are my relative, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what should your wages be? So Jacob was working for Laban here. And here Laban is allowing Jacob to set his wages. And in verse 16, now Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were delicate, but Rachel was beautiful of form and appearance. So we have these two sisters, Leah the elder. Some believe that the fact that it says that her eyes were delicate meant that her eyes were, were blue-eyed, which was not a favored color in their culture, but the brown eye was more of a dominant trait. And it showed strength, and that was the more favored in that culture. Now, the more attractive one that the Bible actually talks about is, is Rachel, and the and Jacob finds Rachel to be so beautiful. So I have a question for you singles tonight. If God sent you a person who was unattractive to you, would you love them? Drum roll. Well, of course you would. God sent them to you. <laughs> you see, sometimes we're thinking so much about, oh man, I feel like God's just going to send me like someone who's just so unattractive, but God, when you are abiding in him, is going to give you the desire of your heart. And there will be that natural attraction. God is going to put that in you. So don't be fearful, singles. Uh, trust the Lord. He knows the desires of your heart. And wait on him. You see, Sometimes you're going to look for the outward appearance when the heart is so far from God. And this actually ends up putting you in places where it's destructive and it will kill your soul. It's harmful. So remember, God looks at the heart. And so should we. Now in verse 18, now Jacob loved Rachel, so he said, I will serve you seven years 
for Rachel, your younger daughter. And Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to another man. Stay with me. Now, this is some work that Jacob is putting in here. Seven years. You see, usually when they would have these marriages, there would be a dowry. And a dowry was used actually as an emergency fund for the daughter. You see, the groom would give this dowry to the father and mother of the bride in case of a separation in case of, of death, the wife would have a, a dowry, some donkeys or food or some sort of finances, something that she could sell to fall back on, to provide for her. And the husband would give that dowry to the mother and the father, and they were to keep that safe, and they were to use it and store it in case some emergency came up. Now, Laban, later on, and we'll read how he didn't really take too much care of watching out for his daughters. So Jacob, because he has nothing, said, look, I'm going to serve you. I'm going to work for you for seven years. And then in verse 20, it says, so Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed only a few days to him because of the love he had for her. Isn't this sweet? To him, it was like nothing. It was so fast. I'm reminded that Jacob here, he's this hilarious giver. Seven years, ha, it's nothing. Nothing for, for Rachel. It's nothing for the love that he had. And I'm reminded that this is the way we are supposed to love the Lord, hilariously. God desires that we would be hilarious givers, not to let our right hand know what our left hand is doing. You see, so many times we, we give with the expectation of something in return. We give and we say, well, why should I do X, Y, and Z for this person or for the Lord if I'm not getting treated the same way? But you see, that's because we're selfish. We're human beings. But how better is it to give than to receive? In verse 21, Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife, for my days are fulfilled that I may go into her. Whoa. He's pretty blunt here with the father. Saying, look, I want to marry your daughter so that I can be intimate with her. That's basically what he's saying. Very blunt. At least he's honest, right? And in verse 22, And Laban gathered together all the men of the place and made a feast. Now it came to pass in the evening that he took Leah, his daughter, and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. And Laban gave his maid Zilpah to his daughter Leah as a maid. Okay. Did you see what happened there? So everyone's getting together for this wedding. Jacob's like, yeah, I'm going to get to marry Rachel now, and I'm super excited. And the party's going on. They're having this really big wedding. But Laban, instead of giving Rachel to marry Jacob, 
he gives him Leia. Now, as I read this, I'm thinking, how did Jacob not notice that he was marrying Leia instead of Rachel? And you can assume that Jacob probably was drunk, that Laban had to have given him some form of alcohol to get him so disoriented that he didn't even realize who he was marrying that night. I'm sure there was a veil over the woman at first, over Leah at first, but when they went to go on their honeymoon, I'm sure he realized the next morning after he woke up with that headache of like, whoa, like you're not Rachel. So I'm reminded, look, alcohol can do all sorts of terrible things in our life. Being drunk, Wine is a mocker, the Bible teaches us. And drunkards do not enter the kingdom of heaven. So a word of warning, if you don't want to wake up with the wrong bride, don't get drunk. And verse 25, so it came to pass in the morning that behold, it was Leah. And he said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Was it not for Rachel that I served you? Why then have you deceived me? What an interesting question for Jacob to be asking. Why then have you deceived me? Throughout Jacob's life, he's shown that he's been a deceiver, a supplanter, somebody who grabs at others' heels, who steals birthrights and who disguises himself. Now Jacob is getting a taste of his own medicine. I'm reminded of what Galatians chapter six, verses seven through eight says. It says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of his flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the spirit will of the spirit reap everlasting life. You reap what you sow, people say. This is right from the Bible, right? Some people call it karma, which is a, high, a spiritual thing without leaving God out of it. But that's, it's not karma. In fact, it's divine appointments. Where God sometimes allows us to get a taste of our own medicine, whether that be good medicine or bad medicine. So when you do good, sometimes good things happen. Sometimes bad things still happen to you. But when you reap into the flesh, when you sow into the flesh, you're going to reap corruption. Remember King Saul? God told him to go out and to wipe out the Philistines, to kill and completely obliterate their nation. But King Saul he didn't obey God's voice and he kept the king alive. He kept the best of their flocks and herds. And God was, was upset that King Saul did this. He sent the prophet Samuel to him and Samuel told him, hey, do you think God delights over your burnt offerings and sacrifice? Or does he delight in obedience? And the sad thing is that at the end of King Saul's life, 
It was a Philistine who killed him. The Amalekites. They killed King Saul. And it's this picture of when you don't deal with the flesh because they were symbolic of the flesh, the Amalekites. When you don't deal with the flesh, when you don't cut it out, it comes back and it kills you. Just like it did in King Saul's life. So may we sow to the Spirit. And what is that? How do we apply that? What does that mean to sow to the Spirit? It's right here, our Bible. Reading. We're sowing to our Spirit. It's prayer. It's going to church. It's fellowship. These are ways that we can sow to the Spirit. Listening to the audiobooks. Christian audiobooks, listening to sermons, listening to worship music as you're driving to work. All these things we can allow the, the, the spirit to grow in. See, there's this illustration often given when it comes to Christianity of our flesh and our spirit being like these two dogs and they're in a dog fight. And you see when you feed the dog of the flesh, he gets strong and he's able to conquer the spirit. But when you feed that spirit dog, he conquers the flesh because it's fed more. This is what we need to do in our life. Side note, I'm not condoning dog fights. Now in verse 26, and Laban said, it must not be done so in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Fulfill her week, and we will give you this one also for the service which you will serve with me still another seven years. Then Jacob did so and fulfilled her week. So he gave him his daughter, Rachel, as a wife also. And Laban gave his maid Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as a maid. Then Jacob also went in to Rachel, and he also loved Rachel more than Leah, and he served with Laban still another seven years. We see now Jacob is given the opportunity by Laban. He says, all right, look, 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 just, you know, do your duties as the husband with, with Leah, you go on your honeymoon, and then oh, when you come back, we're going to give you our, the daughter that you wanted, Rachel, right, right away. But you're going to serve me another seven years for her also. So now we have 14 years of service that Jacob is being indebted to for these two women. And with these women, you have these maids that are given to each of them, which is kind of interesting later on. Jacob, here he has these two wives. These maids are going to also become part of his wives. The, the wives that he marries will tell Jacob, okay, go into my maid so that you might have children from her. And thus, we have this creation of the 12 tribes. 12 children will come from Jacob and these women, coming from the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, marriage. Let me make it very clear. 
though these men recorded in the Bible had multiple wives, never did God record ever saying that was it was okay to have multiple wives. Marriage was between one husband and one wife. We read this in Matthew chapter 19. Jesus said this. He said, haven't you read the scriptures? Jesus replied, they record that from the beginning, God made them male and female. And he said, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife. And the two are united into one. This is a picture of the intimacy of Christ to his church. One groom, one bride. Again, in Revelation chapter 19, it talks about the wedding feast between Christ, the groom, and the church, which is the bride. It's interesting that the Bible begins with the wedding of Adam and Eve. And at the end of the Bible, very end, we also see another wedding, Jesus and his church. God had intended for marriage to be this picture, this illustration of the relationship between God and people, his children. In Revelation chapter 19, verses 7 through 10, it says this. You don't need to turn there. I'll read it to you. Let us be glad and rejoice, and let us give honor to him. For the time has come for the wedding feast of the Lamb, and his bride has prepared herself. She has given the finest of pure white linen to wear. For the fine linen represents the good deeds of God's holy people. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. And he added, these are true words that come from God. And I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said, no, don't worship me. I am a servant of God, just like you and your brothers and sisters who testify about their faith in Jesus. Worship only God. For the essence of prophecy is to give a clear witness for Jesus. See, this is the marriage supper that we are going to get to experience as children of God, where finally we will be there to see the beauty of God in heaven, the beautification of God, which is going to be the desire of our most inner being. It's going to be met. We will be fulfilled, complete, without sorrow, without sin. We will have finally overcame this world. And God will wipe away every tear. This is what we look forward to. In verse 31, when the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb. But Rachel was barren. So Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, the Lord has surely looked on my affliction. Now, therefore, my husband will love me. So 
now as Leah is there feeling unloved because Jacob has all his attention on her younger sister, Rachel. God sees this and he says, you know what? I'm, I'm going to bless Leah's womb and I'm going to give her a child. And the first child she has, Reuben, his literal name means behold a son. And then in verse 33, then she conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am unloved, he has therefore given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Now that name Simeon, it, it means heard when God hears you. She conceived again and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. And that name Levi, it literally means joined to or attached. And then again, and she conceived again and bore a son and said, now I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Then she stopped bearing. And this last son she has, she names him Judah, meaning praised. So notice that here the, what Leah is doing. She is striving and in sorrow, she's having these sons, hoping that her husband will love her, hoping that her husband will pay more attention to her. And we could see that even in their names. Behold, a son, surely my husband's going to love me. Another son, Simeon, God hears me. Again, Levi, meaning attached, my husband, he's going to now finally become attached to me. And finally, in brokenness, I believe. She names this last son Judah. She says, now I will praise the Lord. Where no longer is she seeking to have her needs met by man, but she is simply going to worship the Lord. Worship the Lord for who God is. This is what love is. Love, it's not about giving and receiving or receiving to give. Love is that unconditional love, that unconditional favor and desire for. When you are expressing kindness and goodness, even when it's not deserved, Love is knowing when to stop speaking and when to, to listen. Love is knowing when to, to say I'm sorry. Love personified is Jesus, who never fails, who never lets us down, has no need to say sorry. Jesus is perfect. Love through Jesus was him dying on the cross for our sins. Remember, God so loved the world 
so loved, not just loved, but God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. This is love. God is not slack concerning his promise, but is long-suffering, desiring that all would come to repentance and to the knowledge of Christ. This is the love of God. God's love is eternal. It goes beyond our human idea of love. I would encourage you if you are feeling unloved, if you desire love to be poured into your heart, if you feel lonely, I want to encourage you that Jesus knows your pain. Jesus understands what it is to be alone. He understands what it is to suffer. And he's with you. He's able to heal. He's able to provide, to give you hope. May the love of Christ dwell in your heart that you may go forward in spirit and in truth, worshiping the Lord, praising him. And may you be filled with the purpose that God has for you in your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord. We thank you for this day. We thank you for your love, your grace, your mercy. Would you go before us, Father, as Lord, we desire to be like Jesus, Father, who gave selflessly, who gave himself on the cross. May we, Father, receive that love from you. May we receive forgiveness, Lord God, repentance. And I pray and I ask, Lord Jesus, that we would be men and women, Father, who love one another. May people know that we are Christians by our love for another. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this week we encourage you to continue in your love by sharing the love of Christ with others, by using the name of Jesus in conversation, bringing up his name, sharing it with people, letting people know that there's a God who loves them. May you be filled with his spirit. Go forth. We'll see you Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. here in my backyard. Let's pray. Father, thank you again, Lord. May you just fill us, use us, Father. We love you and we thank you. We want to praise you. May you find these words to be true.
Coming on the clouds Kings and kingdoms will bow down And every chain will break As broken hearts declare His praise Who could stop the Lord Almighty? Our God is the Lion The Lion of Judah He's roaring with power and fighting our battles. Every knee will bow before Him. Our God is the Lamb, the Lamb that was slain for the sin of the world. His blood breaks the chain. Every knee will bow before the Lion and the Lamb. Every knee will bow before